You're listening to The Marketplace, a podcast that's meant to inspire other creatives to make meaningful strides in their own personal and professional life. My name is Priest Willis Sr., and I'm an entrepreneur, investor, author, and all-around inquisitive guy. I'm sitting down with other creators to talk about their process and lessons they've learned on getting the answers to the questions many of us are looking for. Let's get ready to roll. I'm joined with Roger Dooley. Roger is an author and international keynote speaker. He is also a recognized expert in the use of brain and behavior research in, to improve marketing, sales, consumer experience, and corporate culture. He's worked with companies ranging from Fortune 500 firms to entrepreneurial startups to enhance their digital and conventional marketing. Now, the reason why we have Roger on today is to talk about his latest book, Friction, the untapped force that can be your most powerful advantage. Roger has also written a best-selling book called Brain Fluence, 100 Ways to Persuade and Convince Consumers with Neuromarketing, which has been translated into nine languages. In addition, Roger writes on the popular blog Neuromarketing and a column at Forbes.com. He actually founded Dooley Direct, a a consultancy agency, and co-founded College Confidential, the leading college-bound website, which was acquired by Hobson's, a unit of UK-based DMGT, where Roger served as vice president of digital marketing after the acquisition. So the reason why we have Roger on today is, again, to cover his book, Friction, which I think is very important. A lot of us work in smaller companies, but even in startups and other places, even in our homes, we deal with things that aren't as productive. We come against things that we're doing a lot of busy work, but there's no real production coming out of it. It's almost like take going outside and taking rainwater in a bucket and continuing to dump it over. You're not really achieving anything. So this book really covers a lot of tools and pieces on how to get past some of that friction. So Roger and I cover, you know, how to have frank conversations about friction within large organizations, businesses. How do we talk about having meetings for meetings? He guides us through individual and team behaviors. He talks about getting ahead of friction and optimizing customer experience. Like think about abandoned cart when people put products into their cart, but then they just leave. What is the friction? What caused that abandoned cart, which is actually a huge amount of money in you know, just American, the American economy in terms of money that's left on the table, essentially. So I thought this was a great conversation, an amazing book that I read. Obviously, the reason why we have this podcast is to share those conversations with you. I'm really looking forward to sharing this. I want to hear your feedback. So without further ado, here's my man, Roger Dooley. Hey, Roger, welcome to the program. Happy to be here, Priest. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. So a lot of our audience knows that, you know, I'm a geek for authors that really dig into the psychological backgrounds of customers and how, you know, organizations, businesses, you know, look at their customers and how customers look at business and just kind of this unraveling. Because I know there's a lot of layers to people, right? And we're not just robots where we order on Amazon and that's it. There's a lot of other stuff going on. And you're one of those guys this year that I've read your book, Friction, which we're going to get into, that just 
it really spoke to the heart of me on on many different levels, which some of them you know of, and we'll talk about it a bit. But before we get into that, why don't you uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Well, to put it very quickly, I guess, uh, uh, these days I am an author and speaker and trainer. I uh, basically focus on applying behavioral science uh, in a very practical, real-world so sort of way. My first book was Brainfluence that was about practical ways marketers could use both neuroscience and psychology and uh, related fields to market better. And each each was very sort of bite-sized, each chapter is a bite-sized idea of, um, you know, here's something, here's a either a scientific theory that's been demonstrated to be true, or here is a piece of research, uh, and then translating that into a practical marketing strategy. Uh, my book, Friction, is a little bit more ambitious. It's sort of a unified theory of friction and how uh, human effort drives our behavior. And uh, when you are wasting, uh, say, your customer's effort, you are driving them away. They perceive that and they will abandon you. Uh, in fact, there's tremendous data showing how important uh, uh, that is not not wasting the customer's effort uh, in developing long-term loyalty, uh, developing positive word of mouth. But before that, um, I was an, I've been an entrepreneur for a few decades, uh, both in the direct marketing space and then later the digital marketing space. And way before that, I was a uh, an engineer and a corporate executive. I was had gotten to a pretty senior level of uh, strategy. I was the director of strategic planning for a Fortune 1000 company when I chose to bail out and become an entrepreneur. So that's sort of a reverse chronology of what I'm doing. But uh, I really enjoy what I'm doing now because I can uh, talk to people about ideas. I'm uh, like you, I have a podcast, so I get to speak to a lot of smart people and sort of pick their brains and then translate all of this into my writing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when I, you know, and I want to call this out from you because I think you delve a lot into this and the psyche behind it. But when people say that they're in strategy, it sounds really fluffy and like, okay, strategy, what does that mean? Uh, can you can you just share really quickly what your idea behind strategy means at the heart of it? Well, uh, when I was in strategic planning, in truth, it was a little bit fluffy because uh, there tended to be uh, we were trying to extract business plans from business unit managers who basically uh, created these sort of hockey stick graphs of, uh, well, this is our business now and our business currently is kind of bad, but wow, next year it's going to get a little bit better and the year after that it's going to be spectacular. And so that that wasn't, uh, it was it was pretty hard to really sort of uh, put more solid plans and better forecasts into place. That, that was kind of challenging and uh, so there, there was some fluff in that. And after after that, in fact, strategic planning as a whole kind of went, uh, uh, it declined a little bit in popularity simply because of that. People would create these plans and they'd put them on uh, the shelf and forget about them. But uh, these days, I think that every business has to have a key focus. Uh, and this isn't creating hockey stick projection graphs, but uh, rather uh, to say focus on the customer and really focus on the customer. You know, in my book friction, Amazon is front and center as a, a case study. And it's because they have been relentlessly focusing on improving the customer experience. And this is something that like, you know a lot of companies can't say, but I just talked to an Amazon executive on my podcast a uh, few, few days ago. Well, it just dropped uh, today, this morning. And uh, he made the point that uh, in Amazon, they do not want to hear about competitors. 
if you bring up a competitor and what they're doing at a meeting, you will probably uh, get ignored at best. Uh, and also, uh, Jeff Bezos says he does not care about shareholders uh, in that he is not trying to manage earnings uh, to uh, produce uh, a specific shareholder return. Uh, rather, uh, the company is focused on the customer. And uh, Jeff Bezos's feeling is that if you are focused on the customer with just 100% of your attention uh, and that every decision you make is customer oriented, that the competition and the shareholders will take care of themselves. You will surpass the competition and the returns to the shareholders will be just fine. And so far that's been true in both cases. They have pretty much crushed their competition uh, and shareholders who have stuck with them for a while have been very well rewarded, despite the fact that they're not worried about, uh, gee, we're gonna miss earnings by a penny uh, this quarter. So we're gonna have to take some drastic action to make that, to fix that, you know, and. Most businesses, I think many, many businesses could benefit from that attitude, although it's difficult uh, if you have a board who is expecting, uh, uh, you know, regular earnings growth and very predictable uh, uh, profits, uh, then trying to convert to this uh, more customer focused method, it's, it's a challenge. Yeah, I mean, there there's no doubt that businesses that make it clear that their focus is the customer tend, we, we hear a lot of success stories from that Zappos. Tony Shea, who has written a book about delivering happiness, sort of talks about the idea around his focus being the customer and Amazon, of course, acquired them. But there's so many companies out there that you may not be known to connecting the customer focus like a Whole Foods where there's conscious capitalism involved in how they move. You know, it just uh, sometimes it does come down to greed, bored wanting to move in different directions. But, you know, that that I think that's important to be said from you in terms of, you know, strategy is still a very important thing. It can go fluffy, but, you know, there's clouds and dirt. My role at the company that I'm currently at, I'm sort of in the cloud area. My focus is supposed to be strategy and driving new business initiatives. And then, of course, we have dirt and that's not meant to be demeaning, but there's a blocking and tackling aspect to the business that needs to continue on, right? So that that's just as important. So, you know, getting into the book, Roger, first of all, you know, I, I couldn't get past the fact that when I got the book, the feeling of it, I mean, it's it's hard to drop because the friction is already in place in terms of, you know, the the makeup of the paper itself, the cover, if you will, of the book. The cover, yeah. Well, thank you, thank you for noticing that, Priest. Uh, that uh, I had to convince uh, my publisher to do that. Uh, that is not typical for most books, uh, and for people who have not yet seen it, it's not like it's sandpaper, but uh, uh, it does have a kind of slightly bumpy, gritty cover to it, and that that was very much intentional. Yeah, yeah. That that is a really cool piece to the book. But again, I'm I'm a geek for this stuff, so what's inside is even more special. But can we talk about uh, Roger first? The definition of friction. What, from your perspective, what what does that mean? I mean, is there a very high thought to it, or is it the, just a simple, you know, an unneeded block, if you will, for what people are meant to get done? Well, the very simple definition is any uh, friction is any unnecessary effort to perform a task. So if you want a customer to place an order, uh, any additional steps they have to take, whether even if it's just a, a mouse click, a scroll, uh, a couple of keystrokes, all of that is friction. 
And Amazon has been, to go back to them, brilliant at eliminating that because they let you buy stuff with a single click, uh, whether it's a screen tap on your mobile or whether it's a click on a button with your mouse. Uh, you know, they take the friction out of that, but it goes way beyond uh, online ordering. I mean, just processes and procedures. You know, if somebody has to accomplish something with your organization, whether it's filling out a job application or uh, a customer who wants to return something, uh, all of those are potential friction points where it may be more difficult, take more effort than is absolutely required. And, uh, you know, there are occasional situations where a little friction or some added friction can be a good thing. Uh, if you are trying to uh, discourage an activity uh, and, and you're doing so for an ethical reason, uh, then that's that can be good. For example, one company had found that people were using their 401k plan pretty much like a um, checking account almost. If they had any uh, expense come up, they would just phone human resources and say, hey, I need to uh, withdraw X amount of money from my retirement plan, uh, and it would happen. So they added a little bit of friction by having people fill out a paper form. Now, this wasn't difficult. It wasn't meant to be difficult, but just that little added extra effort reduced the a number of people who are drawing out money from their retirement plan, which in general is not a good thing. I mean, clearly, if there's an, an emergency, that's okay. You know, you've got to deal with it. But uh, you don't want people to be uh, borrowing from their future just to pay current expenses. Yeah, you know the. So speaking about friction, why why is it that we know as a society that largely it creates a lot of complications? I mean, there are parts, as you mentioned, that you know really kind of you know help some of the aspects of business and personal lives, et cetera. But for the most part, friction can be major obstacles, whether it's in business or family life. There, there's a lot of things I can name that creates a friction. So at the end of it all, it can be expensive, both in your personal life, financial life. Why do we continue to see it in places like businesses and organizations? And for example, having meetings for meetings, which you always hear people joke about, why does this happen when you know it's more costly to the bottom line? Well, uh, there's often inertia. Uh, sometimes pe people just don't see friction for what it is. You know, uh, taxis are a great example because for decades and decades, uh, taxi service was pretty much the same. Uh, and nobody really saw it as being high friction. Maybe occasionally if, for instance, it was a rainy afternoon in Manhattan and you couldn't find a cab for any amount of money, then okay, that that's you could say, wow, this, this is bad. But most of the time, you just sort of accepted the process for what it was. You'd stand on the corner for a few minutes, you'd wave your arms around, finally a cab would see you and you'd get taken to your destination and pay them. It wasn't until somebody from totally outside the industry, uh, Uber, came along and showed that they could make it much, much easier. And then suddenly people saw all the friction they've been putting up with. You know, they saw uh, how difficult it was to hail a cab. Even if you called ahead for a cab, you had no idea where they were, if they were late, you didn't know if they were around the corner or your call had gotten lost. Getting out, you would have to fumble for cash or you'd have to go through some kind of cumbersome credit card process, maybe. Uh, but uh, you know, we just said, well, look, you can just walk out and say goodbye and it, it'll work. So, you know, I think once people saw that, uh, then they they were aware of the friction involved with taxis and in taxi companies to some degree have tried to address those issues. Now it's pretty uh, common that most taxis do have credit card processing and they make it fairly easy to do. 
where the driver doesn't have to fish under the front seat to find a, some kind of a reader and establish an internet connection and all that. <laughs> I've seen it in some places. It's, it's gotten better, uh, but they've been driven to it by a force from outside their industry. And I think that in general, we tend to ignore those things because we assume that it has to be that way. People just assume that there was not a better way and didn't really think about could it could there be a better way? And then I think the the other reason we tolerate it is because of priorities. I know I, one uh, personal experience with a large company where um, I saw an issue. Uh, I, I was uh, actually working with this company and um, saw a user experience issue where in a very in a very prominent home page, if you clicked on something, you got an unexpected result. So you had to. Uh, try something else, and eventually people would figure out where to click. But I mean, it was clearly a a point of friction in trying to use their website, uh, and it would be a relatively simple coding fix. But when I said, "Okay, well, let's let's fix this right now," it was like, "Well, we don't have the budget to do this. Uh, that'll have to wait till next fiscal." And I think a lot of stuff gets pushed off like that because you know people say the customer comes first, but the customer comes often second after important priorities like making this year's numbers. Right. Yeah. And the, the ironic thing is the customer is what's driving that year's numbers. So you have a chicken and egg thing in some respect. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that uh, as long as you're in that uh, trap of trying to uh, meet very specific projections, uh, tr managing for the customer is going to be difficult. Uh, you know, something else that Amazon does that seems totally counterintuitive uh, is their return policy uh, and the way they process returns. Uh, I was in the mail order business for years and I hated returns, Priest. They were, they were the devil. Uh, they were uh, time consuming. They were expensive. You know, people are supposed to ship, uh, send stuff back to you in good condition and it wouldn't be in good condition. It wouldn't be saleable. You know, it ended up getting scrapped in many cases. Uh, we didn't have the power to push it back to the supplier, which uh, maybe some uh, major like department stores can do to say, hey, uh, here's your stuff back. But, uh, you know, we ate that. And so it was, it was very, um, uh, we did not like returns at all. We accepted them, but we uh, had people, had they had to request a return authorization form by the telephone. Uh, they uh, And then there was a narrow window and so on. So we made it not intentionally difficult, but there was a process involved. Uh, Amazon has and and other companies did things that were even really more added more friction when people bought uh, records and cds uh there were these clubs that you could join uh, uh, that would ship you one every month and if you didn't like your monthly selection you could send it back but to open it open it you had to destroy the packaging like to get at that cd or in uh, prior years the uh 33 RPM disc, uh, you pretty much had to tear the packaging open. So if you decided to return it, you would then have to figure out how to repackage that item uh, to get it back to them. Uh, where Amazon uh, has decided to make it super easy to return stuff. You can request the return online, uh, the very simple process. Uh, you can take it to many, many different places. Uh, you can take it to their lockers. You can take it to different participating retailers. You can take it to UPS or the post office. Uh, in fact, uh, that very issue of uh, difficulty in packaging, because most people are not professional packers, okay? You know, you've, if they 
take something out of the box and uh, now they got to figure out how to repackage it. They're going to find that difficult to do and uh, time consuming. Now you can just take that item to UPS with your printed out uh, barcode uh, and UPS will repack it for you uh, and send it to Amazon for free. So, I mean, it's just, uh, it's compared to what most companies do with returns. It's like they're uh, almost encouraging customers to return stuff, but they know that that's what's good for the customer. When, it, when the decision is made about what do we allow here, they decide what's best for the customer, not what's best for the company, where I think many, many organizations focus on, well, we are putting the customer first, but we have to do what's best for the company. Okay. So, you know, just to, just to switch gears a little bit, I know we've been talking online and returns and how customers are looked at that way. How, you know, looking inside the business from a hierarchy, bureaucracy standpoint, because every company I go to, Roger, I always look at it from three different perspectives. I look at people, process, and profits ultimately, right? That's what I'm, I'm there for, to ultimately drive profits. Of course, I want to look at people. Do we have the right people in place? to drive the business that we need? And are the processes right? Are the tools the correct ones that we should be working with? Everywhere I go, and in, in my current company today, it's the exact structure attack that I've taken. So if we look at process for how Amazon looks at the customer, how they do the one-click buy, how they do the return, they've made it very simple for the customer. But internally, when you look at your internal customers, meaning your coworkers, there seems to be another friction point there between the bureaucracy, hierarchy, other pieces that begin to happen between levels of management, all that kind of stuff. How do you how do you approach that or how do you talk about that? Now, I know in your book here, uh, it has a chapter particularly where it begins with Jack Welch and the bureaucracy buster. But how do you identify those friction points and try to address them or rectify whatever friction issues you may have internally. Well, yeah, this is a huge, huge issue, Priest. Um, according to Gallup, uh, as many as uh, two-thirds to even 85% of employees are not actively engaged with their employer, uh, which means that uh, basically, uh, you know, if uh, they are probably, first of all, not going to deliver that phenomenal level of customer experience that you're hoping for if they're customer facing. And of course, if some other opportunity opportunity comes along, uh, they are likely to take it if it seems a little bit better than what they've got. Uh, uh, and one reason for that is I think that many employees see that they're wasting a lot of their time or their time is being wasted by bad processes and bad procedures. You know, uh, uh, estimates say that maybe half of all meeting time is wasted uh, and uh, workers are hugely distracted by emails and meetings and messages and Slack and everything else. Uh, that uh, the way to begin addressing that, first of all, I think when once people start looking at friction in the customer experience, uh, it sort of gives them a set of friction goggles, as I describe in the book, uh, metaphorical goggles, uh, and they start seeing it in their own experience. They start seeing what's happening. So, to me. Uh, one of the most powerful questions that any manager can ask who's serious about uh, eliminating pointless friction and increasing employee engagement uh, is to say, uh, how can I make your job easier? You know, and this is counterintuitive because usually people think, well, my manager wants me to work harder. My manager wants me to get more stuff done uh, and is not trying to make my job easier. It's trying to, if anything, uh, he or she is trying to make my job harder. 
Uh, so that, first of all, is a very disarming question. It puts you on the same side. Uh, and uh, I, one of the stories in the book is comes from the Welch era at GE, where uh, they had a meeting with uh, managers and uh, manufacturing workers who were uh, unionized and typically not uh, very trusting of management. But they asked that question. And one fellow spoke up. Uh, he was a machine operator. And uh, he said, well, you know, I handle sharp metal all day, and about once a week, I've got to get a new set of work gloves. Now, to get those, what I have to do is shut down my machine, leave my station, uh, go to another building where the tool crib is, go to the tool crib, fill out a form to requisition a new pair of gloves, uh, find a supervisor then to approve that, go back to the tool crib, get the gloves, and finally get go back to my building and my machine, and I can resume work. And that could take an hour or two, depending on... Uh, how busy the tool crib is, whether it's easy to find a supervisor or not. Uh, and this process had been put in place because they did not trust the workers uh, not to steal gloves. Uh, never really thinking about, you know, even if a worker stole an occasional set of gloves, not that that would happen, but even if it did, uh, you know, what's the cost of that compared to all the time wasted uh, in this horrible process? And so the simple solution there was to put a box of gloves by the guy's machine. Problem solved. And no, they didn't all get stolen. Uh, but, you know, and it also showed that individual and perhaps the people around him that, okay, hey, you know, management is uh, somewhat on our side. I suggested this and it'll work. And I think that the people in the organization are often the ones who most can tell you uh, where those friction points are, where are they wasting time, uh, are they filling out uh, forms to get stuff done that were really there'd be a faster way of doing it? Uh, are there steps in a process? Uh, you know, often it's just a matter of approvals. Uh, another story from GE was uh, that there was a newsletter uh, that had to be approved by like uh, five layers of management or six layers of management uh, after it was written. Now, none of those layers of management had ever changed anything or said, no, we don't want to say this. It was just a process that was in place. So, and they just said, okay, well, great. Uh, you know, this. there's never been a problem, so we're going to skip all that approval process. It's done. Don't have to do it. And it streamlined it, saved everybody a lot of time, uh, enabled them to get the publication out faster with less effort, and didn't waste the time of the managers, too, that had to be just, you know, signing off on something they weren't really paying much attention to. Yeah, I really like this because it really changes your mindset on how you start to look at everything around you and where there's friction. And one of the examples that you brought up here was how the taxi business was just doing what it always did. And here Uber comes along and shake it up. And now you hear people, even when they explain their business and they're like, yeah, we're like Uber, but we deliver pizza. We're like Uber, but we sell ice cream. You know, it's, it's, it, it's Uber is now the, the, the buzzword or it was at one point. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think because they that sort of opened people's eyes to the ways that other things could be simplified uh, and streamlined. So you know, I think it's it's valid. Although some some of the uh, comparisons were perhaps a little bit silly, but uh, you know, the basic concept is not uh, not bad at all. That if you can say take a process, and, you know, it's one thing, priest. It's pretty rare for those initiatives to come from within an industry. Uh, for instance. Uh, you had the recording industry uh, and Napster came along to show, wow, you could share music really easily. Uh, people could download it. They could play it. Uh, and, you know, instead of saying, OK, well, we don't want people stealing our stuff, but they have really demonstrated 
a different way of music distribution that we could take advantage of uh, and make things much better for our customers. Uh, all they did was sue to put Napster out of business and continue selling plastic discs. And it wasn't until uh, finally uh, Steve Jobs came along and convinced them that the music store was a good idea that uh, they finally relented and it turned out to be a huge success. And of course, now uh, not too many people are buying plastic discs anymore. But, uh, you know, that initiative did not, again, come from within the industry. It was external uh, and they typically uh, fought it rather than embraced it. I want to thank today's sponsor, Bloom. Do you guys have a 401k of some kind? You're always wondering if you have the right investments, if you're picking the right thing and you're just not fully sure. Well, Bloom with three O's, B-L-O-O-O-M, does free analysis of your current employee-sponsored retirement plan. You get to understand your investments at a glance and uncover unnecessary hidden fees. Then you put them to work. You put Bloom to work with your account for $10 a month and they'll essentially fix your 401k by optimizing your fund choices and minimizing those hidden fees. And then at that point, you just sit back and let them do what they're going to do. Now, I found out about Bloom because of David Stein. I was listening to the podcast Money for the Rest of Us, and he mentioned Bloom. And I just wanted to check to see if I was picking the right investments. And I wasn't that far off. There was a few tweaks. But the concept itself of Bloom is amazing. Go in today's podcast notes and check it out for yourself. Bloom, B-L-O-O-M, for your 401k analysis. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, let, let's stick, if we can, Roger, with this theme around disruption, because one of my other favorite pieces in the book, I happen to be a shopper at CarMax. I purchased five cars from there, and there's a reason why I have, and you've identified them clearly in the book. But CarMax has sort of disrupted how people go out and buy cars. Literally, sometimes in the past, early on when I was buying cars, you could be in a dealership for 10 plus hours. Talk about you know what you've written in the book and the disruption and the, the friction that was noticed in the car buying industry. Right. Well, the, the funny part is that, again, uh, that did not uh, that innovation did not come from within the industry. And, and the, the key innovation was, oh, we're going to treat this like a consumer business where we're going to have inventory. We're going to have prices on stuff. We're going to have salespeople that are not uh, trying to extract extra money from the customer. They're there to help the customer make a choice. Uh, and it seems pretty simple. But as you describe, uh, you know, most people would prefer a root canal to buying a car because of the high pressure sales. All the, all the techniques for, you know, even once you decide, then there are all these add-on things that they're going to get you with and, you know, the financing and, you know, they made it, it was really an adversarial process. And it was also a process where one side had way more knowledge than the other. Uh, the car dealer knew exactly what the value of that, particularly with used cars, uh, they knew what the value of that car was. Uh, they knew if it had major mechanical problems and uh, where the consumer just sort of walks in saying, well, uh, you know, I need a car, I need transportation. So it was a very unequal process. Uh, CarMax said, okay, we're going to try and make this a little bit more fair. Now, the people that started it were not auto dealers. It was uh, Circuit City that initiated the idea, the um, electronics retailer, because before Circuit City and Best Buy had come along as two sort of, uh, you know, reputable standardized dealers in ele electronics, uh, you had... Uh, all these sketchy dealers out there like Crazy Charlie and whatnot who would be selling you TVs and they'd be using every trick in the book to get more money out of you. You know, the bait and switch 
uh, yes, we've got that TV, but then they'd have it sitting in a corner and the picture would be maladjusted. So, but you don't want that one. You want this one over here uh, that, of course, would be have a nice, bright, uh, sharp picture on it. Uh, and it was really a terrible experience. And you constantly uh, were uh, assumed that you somehow, if you bought a piece of electronics, whether it was a TV or a stereo system, uh, that somehow you got taken advantage of. And Circuit City and Best Buy came along and changed that industry into something that was much more reputable, where stuff was sold at a particular price. And, uh, you know, it was uh, the salespeople in general were helpful rather than adversarial. Uh, but uh, they took this philosophy, they, they looked at different markets and they said, wow, used cars are a huge market. Uh, and it looked a lot like the old electronics business where you had these sketchy used car dealers uh, that were, uh, uh, you know, really. Uh, often fleecing the, the consumer. And then you had the new car dealers who uh, were perhaps more reputable, but still uh, you had that unequal knowledge situation. And uh, they tended to be a very expensive way to buy a used car because at least people felt that, okay, uh, this is somebody that is maybe trustworthy. So uh, that's why uh, they started CarMax. They said, you know, we can bring this level of standardization and trust uh, to an industry that currently lacks that. And they've uh, grown like crazy to the point where uh, they're pretty high up on the Fortune 500 list now. And I wouldn't know how to quantify this, Roger, but is it fair to say, you know, when we talk about examples like CarMax and other places like Uber, where innovation seems to happen outside of the industry versus within it, does that does that seem likely that there is more innovation sometimes that's created outside of the industry, like in the the you know, PC market, for example, you will have people that are on the outside looking at things that may be similar to come in to revolutionize it rather than people internally. Is that kind of your thought as you do some of this modeling and you look at? Yeah, I, I think that's frequently the case, uh, Priest. You know, I th uh, sometimes innovation can come within from within an industry uh, and uh, companies that focus on uh, really uh, letting their people uh, generate uh, novel ideas and supporting them. Uh, you know, the, uh, they can certainly have successes, but I think there are a couple of structural reasons why uh, it often doesn't happen. Uh, first of all, uh, many companies are afraid to uh, obsolete their own current business uh, to make it obsolete. In other, you know, uh, if uh, you have a dramatically different uh, product to meet the same need, uh, that will impact your current sales. And so if you decide to uh, start doing that new thing, you if it doesn't work, you might screw up your current business uh, and end up with um, a really bad situation. Uh, and, uh, you know, I talked to an author, Safi Bakal, not too long ago, and uh, he points out that companies often get to a point where he calls it a phase change, where innovation suddenly stops, or at least the willingness to try risky things stops, because at that point, uh, it's better for a given manager to focus on being promoted to the next level uh, rather than uh, really trying to uh, spearhead a risky project. Uh, you know, you spearhead a risky project and it dies, well, then your corporate career is over at that corporation. Uh, on the other hand, if you just sort of uh, meet your boss's expectations, make your boss look good, get your quarterly numbers and your annual numbers uh, right and so on, uh, you get promoted, which has a big impact uh, on your pay, where even if you did have a successful project, uh, it might not have much of an impact on your uh, salary or your rank. 
you know, you make you improve your situation in many large companies by getting promoted, uh, not by successful projects. So uh, he, he has a whole bunch of solutions for doing that. But that's, that's one reason why you don't get innovation from uh, within in many cases. And oftentimes, too, uh, it's a really novel combination of ideas. Like somebody from another industry says, well, hey, you know, we do this in uh, our industry. Couldn't this possibly work over here in this totally unrelated business uh, where those things are just hard to see for people inside the company where sometimes you get somebody who just has a you know, a couple of uh, neurons cross and they say, wow, hey, this might work. But, uh, uh, you know, I think the structural issues are often the key barrier. You know, Kodak could have been uh, a leader in digital cameras and digital photo photography. Uh, they had the technology first, but uh, it was they chose not to aggressively develop that because it would have messed up their film business. Uh, and, you know, they were kind of in a no-win situation. Their film business was going to get messed up either way. There was no way that even if they were the top company in digital photography, that they would replace uh, the revenue and profits that came from that consumable film and processing. So, you know, I, I can sort of understand where they're coming from, but uh, still, they did not become the leader in that industry, even though uh, they had the potential to do that. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, I always wonder in things like behavior science, if humans are the one that is actually pushing innovation or is innovation push, pushing us? Well, that's it's an, an interesting question, Priest, and I don't know. I, I think that um, it's, uh, it's sort of a circular process. Uh, typically, the innovation has to come from a human, but once uh, that innovation gets adopted, often uh, it spurs additional innovation. I mean, look at the mobile phone. I mean, a phone that you could carry in your pocket was a pretty big innovation. Uh, and then finally, the smartphone came along, and that was a, a pretty good innovation. But nobody anticipated all of the innovation that would follow that from totally different companies and totally different people uh, in you know apps and all the other things uh, that we now do on our phones. Pretty much same thing for personal computers. Uh, uh, you know, uh, people thought, well, boy, this is really handy for spreadsheets and uh, you know financial calculations, and maybe maybe engineers could use it for you know complex uh, number uh, uh, calculations. But nobody anticipated what we'd be doing with PCs today. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. So at the end of the day, Roger, when people you know read your book, they listen to interviews like this. What do you want them to walk away with? What is it something actionable? Is it just to be, point out what I've what I said a few minutes ago in terms of in everything you do there's friction and how could we change it? What do you how do you want people to see friction and how we approach it? Well, my goal with the book is for uh, everyone who reads it to get a a metaphorical pair of friction goggles. Uh, and I start off with a little fable at the beginning of the book. Uh, uh, and for anybody who starts the book, uh, don't worry. It is mostly a conventional business book uh, uh, with a mix of uh, uh, stories and some theory to uh, glue it together. Uh, but the uh, what I mean by that is once you read some of the stories and start seeing the examples, you're just, you will start seeing friction in your own uh efforts, your own job inside the company in the customer experience and so on. Uh, and once you start seeing friction, you can't stop. And I've seen this many times uh, when I do uh, workshops or speeches, uh, you know, for the rest of the day, or if it's a multi-day conference, uh, for the rest of the conference, people are 
walking around pointing at something saying friction, friction, because uh, now they're seeing something that they previously would have just accepted and said, okay, um, you know, that could be better, that could be easier. And there's a reason that this happens. Uh, the Our brains have something called the reticular activating system, RAS, uh, and this is a filter that screens out uh, everything that is not relevant to what's going on at that moment. So uh, if you are crossing a busy street, your RAS will screen out everything except the crosswalk indicator, oncoming cars, and the pedestrians right around you. You won't be distracted by all the uh, signs and other cars going different ways and so on because uh, you wouldn't be able to move then. Uh, and uh, this is a very practical function, uh, but and I can give you an example that probably all of our listeners have had, or most of our listeners have had, if they have ever acquired a new car. You know, after when you buy it, you think, wow, this is pretty unique looking. I don't know that I've seen another car exactly like this one, the same color and same year and everything. And within a week or so, uh, you start seeing cars that look like yours everywhere and say, well, what's going on? Uh, uh, you know, where do all these cars come from? You know, and they were always there. They did not suddenly appear, but now... Uh, your RAS has been trained to uh, think that things that look like your car are important because when you look for it in a parking lot, uh, you know, you've, it's got to recognize it. And so it starts uh, letting your brain see these other cars. And what my goal is that when people uh, read the book, see the examples, uh, that their RAS will be activated to find friction in their own experience, uh, in the customer experience they're providing. And they'll hopefully they'll be motivated to correct it and have the ability to correct it. Yeah, I you know again I, I'm a fan of the book. It's probably one of my favorite reads this year. I typically get through fifty plus books a year. I used to do more, but this was one that I read versus listened to on Audible. And you know the charts, the level of detail in here, even the fable was pretty cool. And I like how you set up the fable in the introduction where you're like, look, don't skim past the introduction, or you're saying I know you might, but maybe consider reading this, which I, which I think it was just a good, consistent, cohesive read altogether and just not a, a boring business book, if you will. It was really well done. Well, thanks, Priest. I appreciate that. That's kind of what I was striving for. And that's why I included uh, so many stories rather than just, uh, you know, a lot of business books tell you what to do. Uh, and uh, hopefully I'm doing some of that and they're providing actionable strategies, but at the same time, providing a lot of stories from different environments that people can relate to uh, that both it, keep, it keeps the narrative moving along and also gives them some concrete examples. Yeah, for sure. And look, there, there's so much that we can cover in terms of friction. I'm in a corporate environment, so there, there's tons that I, we could cover, but we won't. What I would suggest to people is go out and get the book, Friction, The Untapped Force That Can Be Your Most Powerful Advantage. And I, I completely agree with this because you bring up, up the RAS. I mean, the more you read about, as you're reading this book, you begin to look for that. that well, it's called friction, but I, I call it time to time like white space. You're looking for those areas that, you know, maybe could be changed or done better. And I think Roger has written an amazing book. And I mean, on the back of it has a list of people that have basically kind of given their their quote unquote sign off, if you will. But this is true to form. It's a really good book. One of my favorite this year. So, Roger, how can um, people want to connect with you if they want to read your your writings your other stuff, feel free to share your information. How can people get in contact and, and take in all your good stuff? 
Great. Well, the best jumping off point is rogerdooley.com. And there I've got links to uh, my neuromarketing blog, my podcast, uh, my Forbes column on Forbes.com and my social profiles. And on social media, I'm probably most active on Twitter, where I am at Roger Dooley and on LinkedIn, where I'm easy to find by searching Roger Dooley. So good. Roger Dooley, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks so much, Priest. I appreciate the invite. It's been really fun chatting with you. Yeah, it has. Thanks a lot. Hey, guys, thanks for sticking around to the end. Hopefully you got something out of that. I thought it was pretty cool. Again, I read a lot of these books to, you know, I'm a digital marketer, but I'm also, you know, a strategist at heart. I want to learn how to make businesses more efficient. I'm always focused on profit, process and people. And a lot of times within each one of those stages of business, you encounter some level of friction, which is the reason why I got the book, which is the reason why I wanted Roger to be on the show. I'm sure you face some of the same things, regardless what level you may be in. You may be in the C-suite of a business. You may be at the bottom as the administrative assistant or somewhere in the org in between, whatever it may be there's some level of friction that you can take ownership and become a CEO of that position. Just because you're an administrative assistant doesn't mean you're not an owner of that small piece of the business. And that's how I approach every business that I'm into, my own personal stuff, but also at companies I go to, I own the organization. I try to build out global scope for the business like I did at Lenovo here. So hopefully you got something out of that. I thought it was a great conversation for me. It filled me up in terms of the tools that I could take away. And again, we, we all laugh about meetings for meetings. And look, if there's not food, then it should have been an email, right? But at the end of the day, how can we really make things more efficient? How can we have discussions without always pulling me away for an hour just to have that one person talk your ear off, but not really saying much of anything? I really want to be productive. I want to drive somewhere. Time is very important. Time is still our most valuable asset at the end of the day. So I look forward to talking to you next Sunday. And oh, by the way, please leave feedback on iTunes. I really appreciate it. It's the feedback. It's the currency that I use to know what we're doing works. Aside from the numbers that we continue to see build up monthly on episodes that download, which I'm truly grateful for. I'd love to see the feedback from people. What exactly did you hear that you appreciated? What more would you like to hear? And we're on Stitcher Radio. We're on Google Play. We're on Spotify. We're on iTunes. Everywhere that you can download a podcast, we should be there. And if we're not, then let us know that. So I look forward to sharing another amazing guest with you next Sunday. Join us on the Marketplace Podcast. the best ever my style is impetuous my defense is impregnable and i'm just ferocious